You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Um, we're still in the studio. We are back in Samuel now, yeah. First Samuel. Mm-hmm. We're in the last chapter of First Samuel, and we are getting ready to talk about Saul's death. And man, you, you, you talk about writing the, the final climax of somebody's story. The, the writer of Samuel pulls out all the stops, and it, it's... One of those stories that you go into and you read it and you go, oh, well, that's nice. But then you start. Do the, you? Well, okay, maybe not. That's nice. <laughs> but, you know, it, you just kind of read it. and It's like, oh, yeah, I, I get it. Samuel dies. Or it's not Samuel. Saul dies. Saul, yeah. And then by the time you really stop and just chew on it for a little bit, then you realize, oh, my goodness, he's put so much thought and, and planning into recording this. Well, that's that's how a lot of the, the Bible stuff we've been looking at has tended to to play out. I mean, mm-hmm. that's how most of the Bible is, and I think I think that's on purpose. Oh, I, definitely. It has to be. I mean, it, it almost it has to be. Now, whether the writers themselves intended to do this or whether this is the product of divine inspiration— I, that's going to be the question. I mean, how... well, it's probably a little of both. I mean, but it, you know, it, it, it's you know, it's kind of like I guess kind of like watching Star Trek. If you just you know, especially <laughs> if you happen to flip past old Star Trek, you know, like the '60s mm-hmm. model <laughs> model uh, the uh, version. I don't know <laughs> the original series, basically with Captain you know, Kirk and Spock. You know, if, you, if you're used to, I mean, a lot of the modern stuff, you happen to flip through it, and you're like. Well, that monster is obviously a guy under a blanket, you know, right. with the Vorta, and, uh, or is the no, that's no, the Horta, not the, not the Vorta. See, and I would not so, remember that at all. But, but whenever, you, but if you actually sit down and watch several episodes, you start going, oh, they're not just off killing space bugs, you mm-hmm. know, they're they're talking about really deep things, yeah, and that's. I don't know, well, no, to I, be kind of to kind of nerd out a little bit. That's that's kind of <laughs> how it is with the Bible. Well, I was actually, uh, I've been reviewing Stargate uh, recently, and, you know, okay, so it's as campy as can be as far as a TV show, and, you know, it drives Ty crazy because he's like, are we watching this again? But, you know, I realized that a lot of it's because they've got these really big ideas that they're trying to boil down into, you know, these one-hour episodes. And so when you do try to take these really complex themes and boil them down, sometimes they can come across as very simplistic and they they act like they feel like they are not complete and so you have to look beyond the surface yeah to to get the entirety of what's being said and and, you know and if we can say this about two tv shows that have been maligned by critics and people who uh want you know this really high level of production and finesse in in the way tv shows are created how much more so in something that God has partnered with humanity to to create? Yeah, well, so, you know, it depends on how you think of the arts as well. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, no, don't, so. we won't go into that <laughs> conversation today. Um, you have a plan. We should. <laughs> yeah, I, I do actually, because oh my goodness, uh, the, like I said, this this made me excited, and this excitement has carried through to Second Samuel because that's what I'm actually putting together right now in the research. But um. We're, we're back with Saul. So 1 Samuel 31, uh, David's been completely removed from the equation at this point. Uh, he's nowhere to be found. Uh, Saul's not going to share the final well, moments. We, we know where David is. Right. But we, as we mentioned, not last episode, I think two episodes ago, maybe three. <laughs> Somewhere in the past. But yeah, and the, that basically it all worked out to where um, David was definitely not on the scene of Saul's death so that no one could say that David went back on his word to exactly to not touch God's anointed and, and he didn't command one of his men it, to do it. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't an insurrection where he mm-hmm. went in and, and killed Saul himself. So precisely. Yeah. But that's yeah, yeah, just I just wanted to touch back on that and clarify because it was kind of a, a major point in the other episode. Yeah, it it really is. And but I also think something more as I, I got into this part of it, I, I think it's about not sharing the spotlight. 
we need to be focused in on Saul. We need to be looking at who he is in this moment, and we need to be thinking back about who he has been previously. And if you had David in the mix, then you'd kind of be distracted from that. So by having the spotlight on Saul, you can think about those things. Mm -hmm. So in verse 1, we're told, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men fled before the Philistines and fell on Mount um, Gilboa. So the rabbis teach that this wording is very intentional, and the the reason behind it is that they read it as the men fell because they fled. If they had stood their ground, then they would not have fallen, which is a possibility because so often in we look back at uh, Joshua and in the Canaanite um, conquest, a lot of the the defeats were because the men lost their nerve. Right. So if they would have actually just just stood firm where God had told them, hey, this land's yours, maybe they wouldn't have been defeated. Um, Now, Gilboa is uh, located on the southeast um, end of the Jezreel Valley. That's been where most of this has been taking place in these last few chapters. And I'm just going to kind of summarize the next couple of verses because they are pretty, this is what you get. The the Philistines have, have overtaken Saul, and Saul's there with three of his sons. Jonathan is among them. Saul is pinned down by the Philistines, and he's pinned down specifically by the archers, and he's wounded. Uh, so he's unable to move. We don't know whether he's unable to move because, you know, if he leaves hiding, then the archers are going to get him, or if he's too wounded to move, or it's a combination of both. And the thing is, even if he wasn't, you know, what we would consider mortally wounded at this point in time, the odds of his survival aren't real good. We need to remember even a tiny scratch in this day and age could lead to death because there's no Neosporin to rub on these things. I mean, you, you, antibiotics were a major um, advancement for saving lives from you know, even the most superficial of, of wounds. Now, of course, the rabbis, they attribute this uh, attack of the archers as cowardice that the Philistines were not brave enough to actually come down and fight Saul face-to-face, so they had to resort to these projectile missiles or or weapons to allow them space. Uh, Uh, I think it's just good strategy. You know, and and sometimes it is. And and that's the thing. That's always the question with the Bible. Do we read too much into it? Are we not reading into it enough? And, And sometimes it really is. You know, it's it's practical. Yeah, well, and it, it seems to me like the rabbis really like Saul. They or really, really want to like Saul. They do. And it, he's a hard character to like. He is. And I, I think by the end of the episode, you're going to have some reasons to like him. And that's that's the fun part, because it wasn't until I got to this chapter that I began to understand why they liked him. And because there's a lot revealed about him as a person. So uh, verse four, then Saul said to the armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest the uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. So, you know, we can start with the obvious. Uh, Saul is scared that the Philistines are going to mistreat him. And, you know, he has good reason to. If you remember back to our first real encounter with the Philistines, mm. which was with Samson, the um, who is the other Israelite giant or strong man. So he shares that in common with Saul. Uh, you know, they had taken Samson, they'd blinded him, they'd made him do the work of a donkey. And he had been brought out into the temple of Dagon and forced to perform to entertain the Philistines. This is something the Philistines do. It's it's humiliation yeah. of of their captors. So you know, if they're willing to do this for a judge and not even a really well-respected judge of Israel, because remember the tribe of Judah turned Samson over to the Philistines. That's how much regard they had for Samson. How much more are they going to do to a king of Israel? Right. And um, it's not just Samson that we see this with either, because not only is Samson taken to the temple of Dagon and humiliated, uh, remember back at the beginning of, uh, of the book of Samuel itself, Whenever the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, they had taken it to the house of Dagon. Right, right. And so Saul's got really good reasons to fear that the that the Philistines might do this to him. And and the armor bearer, he he's refusing from fear. So there's a little confusion because 
this is one time, well, one of many times that sometimes the Hebrew's not real precise. And we don't know if he's fearing to kill Saul because he doesn't want to be, you know, the king's assassin. That That's not really a, a good thing to be. And we don't know if he's afraid of touching God's anointed. We, we don't know exactly what the fear stems from. Hmm. We just know that he's refusing. And so in his refusal, he forces Saul to take matters into his own hands. And so this is when Saul decides, hey, I'm going to kill myself. Now, suicide is forbidden by the Torah. Right. And um, the, the rabbis point back to Genesis 9-5. This is when uh, Noah has gotten off the ark, him and his family, and God's talking to him about how things are going to operate post-flood. And in, it says, and your lifeblood, I will be, require a reckoning from every beast, and I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So basically, if you kill a human being, yourself or someone else, there's, there's punishment, mm-hmm. is how they read it. And now, like you said, the rabbis really did like Saul, so they had to come up with a reason to excuse why Saul did this. Right. And what I find is so interesting is... Uh, they excuse what Saul did, but they absolutely do not excuse what the armor bearer does. So, because in verse five, we're told that the 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 armor bearer kills himself. Right. So um, now the the way they reconcile this idea is that as king, Saul was a representative of God. Mm-hmm. So. It, in order to defend God, to keep God from being humiliated, then Saul had to keep himself from being humiliated. So this is actually a great act of faith and reverence towards God as it protected God's reputation among the Philistines. And so, you know, I can get where they're coming from. I don't know if we can totally uphold it scripturally, mm-hmm. but it, it does make a certain level of, of sense. And the reason why they hold it against the armor bearer is because he's not a king. He doesn't represent God. And so therefore, his death or his mistreatment and abuse would not be a reflection on God among the Philistines. So kind of some interesting reasoning going on, and especially... I don't know if I buy it. (laughs) Right? Well, and especially where we come at it with all humanity is created in the image of God. Right. So therefore, Um, we are all... God's not a respecter of men, you know... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I do think that we kind of approach, I, I think we as modern readers tend to approach the armor bearer with a little bit more grace. I mean, armor bearers tended to be young guys. Sure. He, he's pinned down by the Philistines. He knows what the Philistines are capable of. His king, the guy he's looked, uh, looked up to and respected for so long, is terrified of being captured by them. Why shouldn't he be scared of being captured by them? And so I, I understand why he would follow Saul's example. And I really don't fault him for any of this because what else can we expect from him? Yeah, and that's going to be pretty very difficult to like override your own survival instinct to make, your, to make yourself impale yourself. That's, that's yeah. a pretty rough way to go. That, you know, it's not a typical way of killing ourselves. Uh, you know, we do see that actually um, practiced a lot in um, Japan with the samurai culture, that mm-hmm. if there was dishonor or shame, that they would stab themselves. And I cannot imagine having the willpower to do that. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> anyhow, not to get into our own psychology too much. <laughs> Verse six, uh, thus Saul died and his three sons with him and his armor bearer and all his men and on the same day together. So it's the book of Samuel. So obviously we've already run into a problem. Uh, We're going to find out later that Saul has another son. He's going to show up in second Samuel. So obviously not all of his sons died. Sure. We're going to find out that one of his most important men, Abner, who David had taunted previously, Mm -hmm. he's still alive. So all of Saul's uh, men are not dead, but if we go over to First Chronicles, because now we're starting to see the c- convergence of First and Second Samuel with the Book of Chronicles, sure. There's a record of this event, and it says, "Thus Saul died, and his three sons and all his house died together." So, like I said, we know it's it's not everyone. Saul's got a couple of daughters running around. He's got a son. He's got a grandson. So, 
So uh, my question is, throughout this, has there been any record of Saul having more than one wife? I don't remember as we've gone through it. Because I don't I, know there's much mentioned about Saul's wife or wives if he has We have one. one time that she's named, and I think I said previously in a, another episode that Saul's wife isn't named, and I found out later who she was. So, you know, occasionally I make mistakes. Oh, but we have one named wife, and that's it. Mm-hmm. So as far as I know, we don't have any record of any concubines or second wives, which is kind of interesting when you compare with David and Solomon. Right. Okay. Well, I, the, the question I had with that, if it was like some kind of technicality about like him and his house, if there was like that first wife status, that those would be the heirs to the throne kind of thing versus... You're on to something. Okay. <laughs> You're hey, actually... I, sometimes, sometimes I get it. <laughs> Well, yeah, but I mean, we do have to ask, why is there this overstatement? Or, you know, if you want to be super critical of the Bible, why is there this lie? (laughs) Um, You you have to take some things into account. Number one, in the Bible, all does not mean all. Um, All only refers to those individuals who are impacted by the circumstance they're describing. Right. So if, if you're talking about all the people or all the of the certain people of a nation, what have you, we're only talking about those who are immediately impacted. And we're going to find this played out several times, and we can prove this, which really opens some big questions up for the, for the flood, but we aren't going to go there. Uh, not today. Uh, <laughs> keep listening. We might decide to get adventurous. Uh, but the, the point is everyone who matters in this equation, in this circumstance, is dead. And, and what that really means is anyone with a legitimate claim to the throne in Saul's family, they're gone. And we're going to see this demonstrated very clearly in 2 Samuel. And that's what the writers, both in Chronicles and Samuel, want you to understand. Because why? They want you to get that the, the rule of David is legitimate. It is the, he is the right king to follow. So, verse 7. When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. So everyone's panicked. Uh, you know, the king, his sons, you know, the, the ones who were most likely the future kings of Israel, mm-hmm. they're gone. You know, basically, these guys are saying, our future is gone. Mm-hmm. And, and so they, they leave. Because the bigger question this leads to, if the representative of God on earth is dead, does this mean God's dead? And I think we forget that. We forget that a a king who was slain might actually be telling you that in the spiritual world, your God's dead. Right. And so if God can be defeated, then how can they even think they might survive as a nation or as individuals? There's actually no hope for these men. And so the the Philistines, they waste no time acting on this presumption. They, they just assume, hey, our God won. So that means our God reigns supreme in Israel. The God of Israel's been defeated. Our God, Dagon, is now the one who holds the reins and holds the throne in Israel. Mm-hmm. What a huge statement. And I think we forget that this is really what's going on in the minds of the people at this time. But man, if, if the if the land, the earth itself, is given to those who, who triumph and win in war, that really has to make us rethink how we translate, and the meek shall inherit the earth. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so, it shows you how the new counter and God's approach to reality is so counter to what this culture believed to be true. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not going to get into that, but I just thought that might be a fun thing for people to uh, think about. Sure. So the Philistines, you know, they take up residence in these abandoned cities because it's their right. Their God has won these cities for them. So verse 8, the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So stripping the dead is standard practice at this time. Mm -hmm. Um, David stripped Goliath of his armor when he killed Goliath. And there's really two purposes in this. Uh, Number one, utilitarian. Yeah. Armor. Stuff's not cheap. Stuff I mean. isn't, yeah. <laughs> stuff isn't cheap. Uh, armor and weaponry, obviously highly coveted, especially Philistine armor and weaponry because it was cutting edge technology for that time. But also cloth, sandals, belts, all of mm-hmm. these things were time consuming to make. And like you said, if you had to buy them, it wasn't cheap. 
The second reason is humiliation. So if you killed someone and you just left their their corpse exposed to the elements and the scavengers, I mean, this is like the ultimate slap in the face mm-hmm. that you know, they aren't even worthy to be buried. And not just that their body would be concealed by the earth, but that they would be able to continue on in whatever spiritual existence you know, that culture dreamed of or, or thought was a reality. Because remember, this is also the time of ancestor worship, which is very much alive and well, as we saw in the previous chapter where Saul went to visit the witch of Endor. So this is part of their culture. And we talked about how it was so much a part of their culture that nobody thought anything about it. Right. So um, the, the verse does read like um, the Philistines really didn't expect to find him there. And it was kind of interesting that the, the way it's phrased, it's almost like, oh, well, here's the king and his sons. I, oh, we got them too. Mm-hmm. So it seems like Israel knew that Saul and his sons were dead. Right. But the Philistines didn't get the memo. And that's going to play into the story that opens up 2 Samuel. And we'll talk about that later. So verse 9, so they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. So Saul's not going to be spared any of the humiliation that the rest of his army would have endured. And what I think is really interesting here, the Philistines sent these messengers with the good news. Now, messengers is um, implied. So they sent word is actually, but the good news is translated by the Septuagint as euangelion. Right. (laughs) And euangelion, for those who aren't familiar, is where we get our word gospel. Gospel. Yeah. Yeah. And they send this euangelion, this gospel, to the house of the idols and to their people, which plainly spells out the way we should view this. The defeat of Saul was the Philistine gospel. Mm-hmm. It's the good news that it was being presented in their houses of worship. And it was the reason people praised Dagon in these temples. And to, it was to be proclaimed to the masses, their God reigned. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we forget that most of the terminology we use about God's word is about war. Yep. And if you haven't picked up on that by now, you haven't been paying attention. <laughs> Yeah, well, and it the, this goes back to we have in in Christian culture we kind of have these select words that we kind of basically make them so holy that we don't ever think about what they actually mean, right? And we or when we do have an established meaning, we only use it in that context. We never think of it being anywhere but right there. I mean, mm-hmm. but to, but the thing is, you didn't have anyone at the time going. Well, what's this word mean? Well, it's got to have a special meaning because right? God used it this time and this place in this book, and it means only this and this mm-hmm. and only this ever. And but no, the the Bible is written using a vocabulary people already had. We're yes. we're the ones who are catching up. <laughs> I mean, really, when it comes down to it, it's uh, it was interesting. I recently watched on Netflix. Uh, they just released uh, the Professor and the Madman, which is about the making of the Oxford Dictionary, mm-hmm. which started in 1872, I think. And it was at that point, there was this definitive guideline for this is what this word means. This is how it came into Mm -hmm. being. This is how it's changed. And until that point, even the English language didn't have it. And so when you talk about playing catch up and trying to understand, you know, how do we understand these words? We're we're just now starting to do that as a culture. Right. And to see that. Well, I'm not even talking about like in general as in like the dictionary sense. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about this absurd sense that the church does right. it with words that <laughs> that that they're just we don't fully understand them and we're fairly certain it can only ever mean this one thing in relation to God, and you only say it whenever you mm-hmm. absolutely have to because it's such a holy word. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it drives well, me a little How crazy. often have we been told, you know, the gospel means good news? And in our mind, when we hear good news, that typically isn't People have been slaughtered. People right. have been killed. Uh, this enemy was you know, humiliated and beheaded and destroyed and stripped naked. That's not good news in our vocabulary. Right. Well, it, and, and, and actually, I, I wrote, whoops, excuse me. Uh, when I was writing for the, the sermon outline mm-hmm. company, 
Um, the I actually did a a series. I want to say it was a series on evangelism, and I I used the I I never can say it right. Evangelion. Evangelion. Um, I I I can read it, but can't <laughs> right? say it. But I use that to talk about how you know this is the good news. I think it's really interesting there. They send the good news to the house of the idols. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what's the idol for? The idol is to they're go they're having to inform their own god of what's right. going on, right? So that's <laughs> exactly. one thing. But the this idea of of evangelion this is whenever Caesar or whenever the emperor mm-hmm. took over a new area or was coming to invade a new area, they get, they were sent the the good news that hey, the emperor's coming to conquer you. Right. You can either lay down arms and just become part of the empire mm-hmm. or we're going to kill you. That's the good news. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of nuts. Well, and, and now we have adopted that as part of our, our, our Christian message, our biblical message that this is part of the good news and that this is, we are engaged in this warfare for the well-being of humanity and the earth and the mm-hmm. future. Now, just so nobody mistakes what we're saying, we are not suggesting that anyone needs to go out and actually conduct warfare against people who don't share your belief, because Paul, Ephesians 6.12, this is what he writes, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over pre- this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Mm-hmm. Nothing in there about humanity. Other human beings, other people, don't touch them. That's not our job because they are created in the image of God. And this is something the Philistines did not understand. Right. They did not get that destroying another just because they disagreed with you was actually trying an that's attack not, on God. That's not how, that's not how you get uh, the rule of your God into places, by killing people. Right. I mean, and, and, and also, the work, the, the battle, really, is done on the cross. Right now, it's mm-hmm. just... Right, right now it's just uh, you know the enemy trying to blow up as much stuff as they can as they're retreating. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, is all that's really left whenever that's you get a really down good into example. it. Example, yeah. So um, because yeah, and this this has always been about a cosmic battle, and you know, and I love the fact that the ESV does translate it that way against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and you know, and this this cosmic battle it began in the garden. Back in Genesis 3, when the Nakash, the serpent, whatever that being was, tempted Eve, and then intensifies in Genesis 6, and then the field of battle is defined in Genesis 11, when the uh, Tower of Babel, when God divides the nations according to the sons of God, but then it's refined in the New Testament, where it comes back to, this is what's really going on, and this seems so just crazy and mysterious to to modern readers, but this was the accepted reality, not just of Israel, but of every Mm -hmm. nation. If you want to to survive as a nation, then your God needs to succeed. And this is why these people were willing to fight these bloody, brutal battles, Mm -hmm. because they felt like their existence as a race depended on their God winning. Right. And so this is also why these nations that Israel came up against, and uh, people always seem to forget this, the ones that Israel was told to wipe out, they attacked first. And it was only God saying, we've got to defend the people, and these other nations can't be allowed to hurt the ones I love. You go back to last week's episode with Psalms 25, this is when you become an enemy of God, when Mm -hmm. you hurt the ones God loves. And all of these nations had a history of hurting the ones God loved. So the, the attacks against these nations, and I think there's only seven of them that Israel's told to wipe out, are in protection of God's chosen people. Right. And we have to remember that. Um, and only because, and the other reason this is important is the only God capable of displacing the gods of those particular nations was the God of Israel. So. Verse 10, they put his armor in the temple of Asheroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. So now the, the writers of First Chronicles offers a, a few differing details. This is in First Chronicles 10.10. They put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head to the temple of Dagon. So we've got some differences in the way the story is told in the two books. Uh, in 
Samuel, um, in Samuel 31, 9, Saul uh, is beheaded, but um, in, oh, that's actually incorrect, never mind. Uh, the armor in, in Samuel is, is sent to the temple of Asheroth. In Chronicles, there's no mention of Asheroth. Okay. In First um, Chronicles 10, 10, Saul's head is displayed in the house of Dagon, but there's no t- mention of Dagon in um, Samuel 31. So we've got excavations of Bethshon, which is really interesting. Okay. This is, uh, sorry, and this is Bet or Bethshon. There's pronounced both ways, not Bethshon, which I did look up to see if there could possibly be a, uh, a connection. There's not. And archaeology showed us there, there's two twin temples there, and they've been there since the time of Ramses II. Hmm. So these things have been there for a really long time. Well, Asheroth was worshipped in one, and Dagon was worshipped in another. And so um, the, this, this victory over Israel had been celebrated throughout the city. And the male and female deities of the city would have both been seen as victorious. Mm-hmm. It, they would have been shared, shared credit in overcoming the God of Israel. So dividing the spoils of the war were, was not uncommon. And it doesn't change the fact that by offering to one, you are also including the significant other in the equation, if you like. And so the the fact that the writer only includes one, where Samuel talks about one and Chronicles talks about the other, it it doesn't matter because the point is they're trying to to convey a theological point. And they they basically were in the same, like right next door to each other. Yeah, it's like, it's not... There's no real distinction in the Philistine culture, and it's only people who want to try to make a impose some kind of distinction today can see that this is a contradiction. If we understood how the Philistines viewed it, then there's no problem, or even how Israel uh, viewed it. But the the importance of this is not necessarily the name of the god that uh, had won. It was the fact that a Philistine god was seen as winning mm-hmm. over the god mm-hmm. of Israel. And that's, that's the theological significance, which ultimately, when you get down to what the Bible is trying to communicate, it is a theological message and not necessarily trying to keep all the, the, the historical facts in line. So um, this also tells us what we need to be thinking of. We need to be thinking of First Samuel chapters 5 and 6. And this is when the ark is taken to the temple of Dagon. So the writer of 1 Samuel says, I want you to think of this event. And the way I'm going to get you to think of this event is by bringing back this name we haven't talked about in a while, which is Dagon. And remember when the Ark of the Covenant was taken to Dagon's uh, temple, this was the symbolic victory of Dagon over the God of Israel. Right. And so we, we talked about this in previous episodes, so I'm not going to go into it all again. But the important part there is the... The statue of Dagon fell over and was beheaded. So we have another link. So not only do we have the temple of Dagon, we have beheading, the two themes pulling it together. And if you're you know, a close reader of the story, what you get out of this is we know that even though Saul's beheaded, the story is not over and because the ark returns to Israel. And even though the, the ark was, quote unquote, humiliated in the, the temple of Dagon, the ark returns once again, and we're going to now. It's not going to return completely until David's on the throne, right? But we're being set up with this anticipation of, of how things are going to play out, and there is this progression. It, it's not just all of a sudden. There, there's certain steps that must be followed, and so we're repeating this story where God kind of gets there out of the house and comes back to Israel mm-hmm. from uh, being in the house of Dagon, and then. We're going to move God into Jerusalem proper later on. And we're going to see this played out with the story of, of David because we're going to leave the days, the reign of Saul behind when God was humiliated in the house of Dagon in the form of, of Saul. David's going to get the ark in God's presence to Jerusalem, but it's not going to be until Solomon when it's completely fulfilled. Mm. So you, you see these parallel lines of thoughts uh, that are going to to run through these stories. But, you know... All of this was happening for us it's 25 chapters ago, but if you go by chronology, it's like 40 years by most accounts. Sure. 
That's quite a while. It, it really is. For you, one person, anyway. Yeah, I mean... Even three, I suppose. <laughs> well, I'm trying to do math, and I need to just give that up right now. <laughs> so, But I think what's interesting about this is, is the people of Israel remember. Mm -hmm. But the, the Philistines have forgotten at this point. They don't seem to remember what happened. Oops. Uh-oh. I thought that was uh, turned off. Uh, they don't seem to remember that um, it's not a good idea to take something that God values into the temple, into the temple <laughs> of Dagon. And, and I got to thinking about this, and I am almost certain this is right. So, you know, just kind of bear with me on this. I don't think evil is capable of a long-term memory. I mean, it, it's so inward-focused. It's so consumed with what feels good now that the past kind of gets obliterated. Unless it's a, a way to, to fuel anger or bitterness, the rest of the time, it, it just conveniently hmm. gets set aside. But who does have a memory? God's people has, a, they have a memory. And this is, hmm. you know, there's actually a, a rabbinic saying that the whole of the Torah is remember and that, you know, we are supposed to remember. And if you move on into the next verse, notice the connection. But when the inhabitants, inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard, had heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came back to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and they buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. Now, we haven't heard about Jabesh Gilead in a long time, but if you go back into to the book of Saul, it, in book of Samuel, you're going to find that Jabesh Gilead represents the one moment where Saul gets it right. Mm -hmm. It's the one untarnished moment in his reign because the Ammonites had come in and taken over the city, and Saul, without hesitation, he rallies the troops and he goes out and he gathers this the city up and, and saves them from the Ammonites. And God's people who lived in Jabesh Gilead, they're the ones who remembered. And it's this memory that causes them to act now. And hmm. so and, and notice it's the valiant men, the the Kiel, the and the valiant men are often uh, connected with the Gibor or the Gibberim. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're being told that these are people who are celebrated for, for their action of remembering. And so whether or not my, my um, supposition or hypothesis about evil having a long-term memory is correct or not, I'll let y'all guys discuss that and work it out. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's this idea that memory is a huge part of maintaining your faith. And again, we saw this last week with David, whenever he's reading Psalms 20, when he's writing Psalms 25, and he's bringing to mind all the things God had done in the past with the connection to Moses. And Saul doesn't seem to remember a lot of times, and that's one of his huge problems. But another thing that we should note too, is that burning bodies is not typical in the Israelite custom. Uh, it's just not something they do. The body is the image of God. So mm -hmm. they're, they're short. Therefore it should be honored. And you do this by, by wrapping the body in linens, anointing it with oils and spices. And then after a time has passed and the flesh has decayed, then you gather up the bones and you put them in a niche and then you put a new body in. Mm -hmm. And so, um, this, this, Burning here is actually a sign of honor because it's going to keep the Philistines from trying to find the body later and trying to, to desecrate the bodies further. And the men of Jabesh, they, they bury Saul under a tamarisk tree. Now, if you remember in Saul's story, he's made a lot of decisions from under the tamarisk tree. Right. So this is very much connected with his... Um, with his authority, and, and it's very much a way of honoring him, and especially whenever you connect that fasting for seven days. And so the last person we had where there was fasting is the death of Samuel. So these, these people are remembering Saul at his height, at his, at his goodness, and when he was doing his best. Mm -hmm. And um, they're, they're celebrated for it. And we're reminded that at one time Saul had 
been an honorable king. He had been a king that Israel could be proud of. And it wasn't until he he kind of lost the plot that he became, you know, this this tyrant that you couldn't rely on. Right. And I think because this is the moment of everything that went before and all the stuff that Saul had done in the past, this is the moment the writer and the men of Jabesh bring back to the forefront. Don't forget who he was. And I, I think this is how we're supposed to look at Saul in this account of his death. We're supposed to remember him at the height of, of you know, his success. And, you know, we need to remember, too, he didn't have to go into battle. He knew he was going to die if he went into battle. That had been told to him in the witch's house, at the mm-hmm. woman of Endor. And yet he still went in. And he still fought on behalf of Israel. Why? Because as king of Israel, he couldn't let Israel fall into the hands of the Philistines. And he needed to defend this nation. There's still something in him that said, my job is to fulfill this mandate. And this is how David's going to remember Saul. And we're going to see this in 2 Samuel when David laments the death of Saul Mm -hmm. and Jonathan. David doesn't remember all of Saul's failures. He remembers Saul's successes. and. I think that's why the rabbis can love him so much, because they they remember him through this lens that David provides for us, that and this lens that the men of Jabesh Gilead uh, provide for us. I I can see that. I mean that that it, yeah. I mean that that makes sense. I I still think he and I would not get along very well. <laughs> right. Like, well, he didn't get along with anyone well in his <laughs> lifetime. But you know how often is it? Uh, and we've seen this in uh, with family members and uh, people we've known who've died. And it's like the second they die, they go from being a scoundrel to being a hero. Oh yeah, uh, you know? <laughs> yeah. They, it's amazing. Yeah, how quickly everyone. Well, I don't remember any of that. <laughs> right. And, and this this is, happens over and over again. And here in in Saul's death, uh, you you forget all the stuff he did before. It it really does. It's not that important. It doesn't matter. Right, but we do need to remember he's God's anointed, and there were a few times when he did get it right, and so there, there's some interesting things being shown to us in this story. Now, there's even more than that because we're not done yet. So I actually, um, I should hope not. I mean, we've got <laughs> nine, you know, eighteen minutes before we're. Oh, I've got more than yeah. Uh, we won't. Yeah, we're gonna take up all of that time. So, uh, Doctor Vance, who is. Uh, he was one of the profs at ORU. I never got to study with him while I was there, but he has done some amazing work in uh, the Hebrew language. He actually did a reader's version of the Stuttgartensia, uh, which is your Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one of our listeners sent that to me as a gift about a year ago. I love it. Anyway, um, <laughs> but I got to ask him about this. He has a um, theory uh, that he's presented in a paper that, Joshua, Judges, and Samuel were all written by a single author. Uh, I haven't got a chance to look at that paper, but he did confirm that he this is the view he holds. I would love to be able to read the paper. I'm going to have to talk to him about that. But I think that this view holds a lot of weight when you see how Samuel presents the themes presented in Judges. And he uses these themes, this writer of Samuel, uses these themes from Judges to make some theological points about Saul, but also... The, the kingship of Israel, and because you can't disconnect the two. Right. So, um, you know, so we're going to go back in time a little bit. First Samuel opens with the book of Hannah, and I think we all remember her story. Sure. Sure. Barren woman praying to become a mother, but not for herself, not because she wants a kid, but as a way to combat the oppression of the corrupt priesthood. Mm-hmm. So if you need to remember that, you go back to... Um, Go back and listen to our, our previous episodes on First Samuel. Now, if you go back to Judges 5, we have the story of another woman, and this is Deborah, a woman whose own children are never mentioned, but she says this about herself, I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. Mm-hmm. So we have these connections with Deborah and Hannah. They're both women. Motherhood is a shared theme. Um, Deborah prophesies between Ramah and Bethel. Hannah lives in Ramah. They're both prophetess, so they, they both mm-hmm. speak on behalf of God, and they arrive at a major shift in Israel's leadership. Now, Hannah arrives when there's corrupt priests at Shiloh who um, have been abusing their power, 
and she's praying for a king. She she's ready for God's anointed to arrive. Mm-hmm. Deborah is uh, in the shift from commendable judges because we go back to Othniel, mm-hmm. uh, Ehud, and Shamgar, who there's no critique of these guys made. Every judge that follows Deborah, there's a problem with them. Right. So there's a shift, uh, and the corrupt leadership is part of the shift that these two women stand kind of at the pinnacle of. And I think that these three judges, the last three judges, actually give us a lot of insight into who Saul was. So if we just go through them in order, uh, you've got Saul and Gideon, and both of them have this dramatic call with these great over-the-top signs of confirmation. Remember Gideon mm-hmm. and the fleece? Uh, they're both called mighty men of valor, and both overstep God's commands to the point of defiance. And we have Gideon, who made the ephod at Orpha, which uh, became a place of worship. We've got Saul offering the sacrifices in Samuel's place. So they right. share this kind of theme. Uh, they both kept spoils of war they should not have kept. Gideon keeps the gold from the Midianites, Saul, the animals, and the king of the Amalekites. So we have those connection points. And when you look at Saul and Gideon, you see that not only do we have almost parallel uh, stories that, that illuminate each other, we begin to start to wonder what does this say about Gideon as a, as a judge and what does this mm-hmm. say about Saul as a judge? And we're going to talk some more about that, but that's not where we end because if we move forward in, in the book of Judges, we have Saul and Abimelech. Now, Abimelech's not a judge, but his story is significant to, to Saul's um, story because Abimelech is Gideon's son. Right. And they were both said to be the first king of Israel. Mm-hmm. And both kill their brothers. Abimelech kills all of Gideon's other sons. Saul kills the priest at Nob. Both are plagued by an evil spirit from God. So again, I mean, that's a major connection right there. Both die in a very similar way. They both ask their armor bearer to kill them so they can avoid shame. Mm -hmm. Abimelech didn't want to be known as being killed by a woman because a woman had thrown a millstone off the top of a tower. And Saul didn't want to be killed by the Philistines. Ultimately, both of their fates were revealed by, wom- by women. Uh, a woman is directly responsible for Abimelech's death by mm-hmm. throwing the millstone mm-hmm. down. A woman, the witch, is the means by which Saul's fate is revealed. So very important. Now, Jephthah, uh, this is one that a lot of people, a connection a lot of people pick up on, because, again, both mighty men. The first de- decisive battle was against the, the Ammonites for Jephthah. But also, it was Saul's first decisive battle was mm-hmm. against the Ammonites. The spirit of the Lord was upon them as they fought the Ammonites. Said that very specifically about both men. But the the real connection is the tragic vow that endangers the life of their child. Right. So um, we also find that that Jephthah turns on the Israelites, and so just like Saul was killing Israelites, the priest of Nob, because they didn't bow to his. Commands. So we've got some major connections there. Then Samson and Saul. Again, mighty men. Saul's tall. We assume Samson was tall because he's the strong guy, but this I- larger than life idea definitely carries into Samson's life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the imagery we have, just look at any illustration of Samson out there. Um, the Philistines are the primary enemy for Samson, as mm-hmm. they are the primary enemy for Saul. Both die by their own hands. You know, Samson dies in the temple of Dagon, and when he shoves the, the pillars apart and kills himself along with the other Philistines, now Saul dies in the field and is taken to the temple of Dagon. But women also played a significant role in both their deaths. Delilah with Samson, the witch of Endor with, with Saul. Now, having listed all these horrible things about these judges, <laughs> what we need to remember is... Hebrews 11.32, where it says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets. So, you know, Saul's being connected back to these judges who, despite their failings, are still remembered as faithful. Mm-hmm. And so this made me really think about Saul. I don't think Saul's core issue was a lack of faith. 
And I think the way the writer connects Saul with these judges who are remembered for their faith kind of supports this. But I think what we're seeing that faith alone is not what it took to be king. Faith in, faith in God wasn't enough. A king has to grasp God's heart. He has to understand God's intentions on the earth. And if he doesn't get that, then he's never going to be a good representative for God. Right. And that's where David and Saul kind of go, um, you know, kind of go their separate ways. But also faith alone, faith without feeling and understanding on proper application can get us into a lot of trouble. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I don't think we're, that's kind of not something we're taught about faith a lot. I mean, but think about it. I mean, faith without understand and understanding, that's what leads Gideon to hubris to say, I can establish a new place to, uh, where we can worship. Uh, it's what inspires Jephthah to false piety. I'm going to make this great vow before God. Mm -hmm. Samson believed the rules didn't apply to him because God had said he was special. Mm -hmm. And so for two, we see faith in their life go from, you know, from faith to folly. Where, where Gideon and Jephthah go from being men who seem to have some understanding to their own ideas of their greatness and what faith means for them to um, take them down a path they shouldn't have gone down. Right. Where Samson, he actually goes from rebellion to faithful submission. And it's only at the very end that he says, I'm going to trust God and I'm going to ask God that God would let me participate in the things he wants to do. Now, it was still kind of self-serving in the fact that he got to take out the, the Philistines. Right. But at the same time, it took all of this tragedy and all of this chaos in Samson's life to, to bring him to a place where he can say, I'm finally just going to do whatever it takes for God's way to, to prevail. And I think that we see this in Saul's death, that in some way he's united to Saul's death that unites him to Samson's victory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it also illustrates Saul's primary problem. He didn't have any distinction from the judges. There wasn't much difference between him as a king and the judges leading. Yeah, fair enough. Well, and, and it also makes sense why the writer seems to be asking us the question so often with David in the past chapters, was David going to be a judge or was David going to be a king? And if he was going to be a king, was he going to be a king like Saul? Because if he was going to be a king like Saul, then he's just going to be a judge and we aren't any better off and mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. is a problem. <laughs> and so we, we see that, that Saul never really possessed the qualities that would allow him to be a king. And, and this is the point. The old ways had to die because the nation needed to be reborn in, under new leadership. And it needed to go, needed to step out of the established way things had been. But, you know, we go back to, to Hannah, and Hannah says, you know, we've got to step out of the way things have been. Right. And, and what we find in Samuel is this displacement of leadership that God says, yes, you can be a leader, I'll raise you up, but you, if you don't get it, if you don't understand who, you, who you're to be, and the importance of this role, you're going to be removed. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we, we have these ongoing cycles of displacement from corrupt leadership in the priesthood to faithful leadership, corrupt leadership in the kingdom to faithful leadership. And this kind of serves as a warning for the modern reader. Can you claim to be a Christian? Can you claim to be a follower of God and even be blessed in those moments? Can you rest on that, or do you need to worry about being displaced? I mean, do you, do you need to think about, and I'm not talking about once saved, always saved, or anything like that. I'm talking about from those positions where God has called you to leadership. Right, right. An example. So, I mean, the, the once saved, always saved, that's a whole different conversation, which, uh, that's theology. <laughs> make sure, well, yeah, just make sure we're not confusing, you know, so uh, like our, our salvation, doctrines concerning salvation can with doctrines concerning calling. Right. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, we talked about this with the witch of Endor. Was, she says, tomorrow, uh, sorry, Samuel says to Saul, tomorrow you and your sons are going to be with me. Mm -hmm. So where was Saul going to be? And is Saul going to be with Samuel? Does that mean that Saul is going to wherever faithful Israelites go to wait God's judgment? Or, mm -hmm. you know, it, and these... 
this is the huge question of, of Saul. Was he truly saved? Uh, right. if, if we want to use a New Testament parlance for it, it, it w- was he truly um, a faithful Israelite or was he, was he corrupt? And I think the fact that the, the rabbis do have such a favorable view shows that they read this through that connection back to the judges who they celebrate as being the ones who brought them out of oppression. Mm -hmm. Because every time a a judge was raised up, it was because God had allowed an opposing nation to come in as judgment against the people for forsaking them. Mm -hmm. And so Saul isn't any less successful than that, than the judges who came before. Because yes, were the Philistines still a problem? Absolutely. But were the Philistines still a problem when Samson died? Evidently so, because they show up again in 1 Samuel. Mm-hmm. And how many decisive victories did Samson ever have in his lifetime? Just the one at the Temple of Dagon. Other than that, he always seemed to have limited success. And matter of fact, he even lived among the Philistines, which creates another interesting issue, because where's David living? Right. And so we aren't going to get into that just yet. But, <laughs> but it's all these complicated relationships and connections that the writers made that is helping us see Saul in a new light. And when we move into 2 Samuel, which is kind of interesting that 2 Samuel uh, picks up where it does, so that there's this division in the two at this point, Mm -hmm. because it seems almost like 2 Samuel 1 should belong with 1 Samuel more so than in a new book. But this is why we have to remember that the books were divided according to the standard length of um, a scroll of the scroll. And so when we get into Second Samuel, we're actually going to find out that there is there's even more threads to pick up in this connection. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the fact that you can see that this that not only the connections, but this reoccurring theme where there's just more obedience, more understanding, more insight, and more responsibility that's being expected, not just of of David as the king who's going to replace Saul, but Israel as a nation now must follow that leadership Mm -hmm. and so that they can fulfill their destiny. Because it's not enough to have a great leader who, oh, look, he, he looks wonderful. We need a nation of believers who can walk forward in, in some kind of confidence in what God's calling them to do. Right, And that's really what David, um, he provides this moment in, in Israel's history where they can actually look at themselves and say, you know, there is a God who, who has determined our future, not because of anything we've done, but because of who he is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's something I think a lot of Christians today need to grab hold of a lot more, that it really isn't about us. Right. <laughs> it's about God's character. And... That's another reason why the story of Saul's death uh, here with all the connections back to the judges is so interesting if you bring in that Psalms 25 and have that behind it because you see the contrast so much more clearly between the mm-hmm. character mm-hmm. of the two men. Yep. And so it, this, this is why I like studying the Bible. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> there's a lot of good stuff in there. Well, and when you really start to study it, I mean, you really do see how it has to be an inspired work. Sure, yeah, it, I mean, and when it, it all comes together, and, and whenever you really, I mean, I know we say this a lot, but <laughs> when you're familiar with the Old Testament stories and how they work together and the picture they paint, mm-hmm. that, and then you throw the New Testament on top of it, you're like, oh, there's so, it answers so many questions. Well, you understand why Paul could write Romans, mm-hmm, you know, a book mm-hmm. like Romans, which is considered to be, you know, one of his most comprehensive theological uh, works, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then you see why he can write this and pack so much information into what is a relatively short book. Yeah. I yeah. mean, anybody pretty much can pick it up and read it in a day. Mm-hmm. And yet there's so much truth because it is all rooted back in these types and forms and shadows and prefiguring, however you want to say it, of the Old Testament. Yeah. And, and yeah, and it's a great book. I mean, as long as you don't get stuck in one chapter, you'll be fine. Right. It's yeah, don't pull things out of context. And, and the thing is, when we say that, you can't just look at the book of Romans itself. Right. You have to look at the totality of scripture. And so I not to get you know hung up on Romans, but you know, there's a lot of people who say things about Romans, but if you try to 
bring what is said in Romans into alignment with what's said in Deuteronomy. Right. You can only do that if you don't impose certain readings upon the text. And, and if you read what Paul is writing from the worldview from which Paul is writing, right. which is one of a, a rabbi who spent his time and his life dedicated yes. to that's studying Torah. Second temple rabbi. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's, yeah. Pretty the, much the, had the Old Testament memorized. <laughs> yeah. Paul is, yeah. Paul wrote Second Temple literature, and it should be read as Second Temple literature. Exactly. So, but let's not get too far afield <laughs> on that. For more on that information, go check out um, just check out the Heiser stuff <laughs> or Marion Brand stuff. Those, yeah, she doesn't get much into Paul, but no, um, she pretty much drives away from the New Testament. Yeah, but, uh, Second Temple stuff. Aside from that, she is she's one of the top voices out there. Yeah, it's good stuff. So, um, anyway. Uh, that being said, I think that's probably a good place for us to wrap this week. Um, it's been fun. Um, if you want to be part of the conversation, as always, Raven Creek SC on all the social media. RavenCreekSC.com is the website. Gets you to us and to the commentarians with Joe Zaragoza and uh, Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. So um, other than that, I think uh, we'll see you around and we'll be back next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Oddities Podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.